Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to be in Parshat Sav this morning, and wherever the triennial tells you, we're going a little further in. So we are going to be now at chapter 8 uh, of... Vayikra of Leviticus, uh, but we're gonna we're gonna go a little bit in from the offerings. We're gonna go to verse twenty-two. It's a short parsha, so so the triennial actually kind of overlaps uh, because there's not a lot of material to divide into three. Remember what happens right before the part that we're gonna talk about. Um, we're getting all of the instruction to Moshe, uh, and then. Uh, the implementing of these instructions that he's to bring Aaron and his sons forward in order to dress them in the special garb of the high priest and of the priests and then they are to make offerings as part of consecrating uh, Aaron and his sons to the priesthood and they're going to need to consecrate the altar as well for the sacrifices and so we're going to look at some of the interesting language around that and um, this ceremony of ordination so we've gotten all of the explanations about what they're to be dressed in all of the offerings that are supposed to be offered until we come to now the actual discussion of the ordination ceremony itself so 22 someone want to read he brought forward the second ram the ram of ordination Aaron and his sons laid their hands upon the ram's head and it was slaughtered. Moses took some of its blood and put it on the ridge of Aaron's right <coughs> ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Moses then brought forward the sons of Aaron and put some of the blood on the ridges of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And the rest of the blood Moses dashed against every side of the altar. He took the fat, the broad tail, all the fat about the entrails, the protuberance of the liver, and the two kidneys and their fat, and the right thigh. From the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one cake of unleavened bread, one cake of oil bread, and one wafer, and placed them on the fat parts and on the right thigh. He placed all these on the palms of Aaron and the palms of his sons and elevated them as an elevation offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and turned them into smoke on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering for a pleasing odor. It was a gift to the Lord. <coughs> Moses took the breast and elevated it as an elevation offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right. Nice. <laughs> nice. Exactly what we did when I was, you know, ordained. Exactly. It was a messy but wonderful day. Um, so we, we get all of these other offerings that come first, and some of them, one of them is the chata. Why does Aaron need a chata offered on the day of his ordination? Clean away any of his sins. To clean away any of his sins, meaning it is assumed that he Many has sins. sinned. Right? No infallibility here, right? No, no, anything about leaders means they don't err. Everybody is assumed to have sinned. The good news being that does not disqualify you from leadership. 
It means you have to fix it. You have to bring a chata because it's assumed you've messed up. Okay. <clears throat> so at verse 22, he brought forward the second ram, the ram of what? Hamiluim. So the, from the Hebrew word malay. What is malay? Full. So what's full? Complete. Complete. The completion of... Interesting. Okay, so the fullness of the process of them becoming priests. Okay, interesting. We're going to get to some interpretations. So the ram of Miluim, this is not a chata. This is not a sin offering. This is the ram for the ordination ceremony. So the yismichu Aharon uvanav et yedehem al roshayil. Right. So we talked about smicha. Right. Placing their hands on the head of this ayil. Why? Why do they have to place their hands on it? Do we remember? It's not a chata. So there's one interpretation that is not here. Why put their hands on the head of this animal? To say that it's theirs. To say that it's theirs. It has to be designated as their offering. Right? So they place their head, their hands on the head. It's their offering that they're bringing. And um, it was slaughtered. Moshe took some of its blood and put it on the ridge of Aaron's right ear, on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. We Remember, we studied the instructions right, about this before. Here's where it's being enacted. So the ear, the thumb, and the foot. Why? Hearing. Hearing. Doing. Doing. And walking in God's ways. And walking in God's ways. Lovely. And the right side, what reason all? Ah, always the right side. Always the right side. <laughs> right? But if you think about it, my, I don't know about you, but my grandmother like was left-handed, and they smacked her with a ruler to make sure she learned to use her right hand. Right? There's this, it's an aberration. Anything aberrant was, was made everybody nervous. Right? Trust me, I understand. Right? My life has been about making everybody nervous. Right? So, um, but it, so the right side is the dominant side for most people. It's the dominant side. Um, but doesn't God's right hand play a part in a lot of Because it's the dominant. Right. It's your sword hand. Mm-hmm. Right? It's your strong hand. So if you're going to do an action, if you're right-handed, your tendency is to reach with your right hand or lead with your right foot. So that's, it simply is because that's what most people were. Except for us lefties. Although there's a theory, there is a theory, it's kind of crazy, but there's a theory that cuneiform was clay tablets, you know, and you use a stylus in the wet clay, and there's a theory that Hebrew goes from right to left because people were left-handed, and it was easier to to use the stylus right to left, so just saying, there's a theory. And that, that, that it changed later, right hand became dominant. But if you look at our texts, I think at least at this point, people were... Right hand dominant. All right, so, but I just read another interpretation of this. See, you never stop learning. Um, I read another one that said, what are the things that distinguish the priests from the animals they're going to slaughter? Right, what distinguishes human beings from animals? The fact that when we listen, it's not just for signals, right? We listen for meaning, language, 
right? That we, we have language, so we listen and then comprehend things about the world in a way that presumably animals don't, uh, and that we have an opposable thumb, uh, and you know, also that we are bipedal and you know, walk upright and therefore have the ability to use our hands. In different, so um, an interesting, another interpretation, uh, that, that Aharon should both lay his hands on the head of the animal, he should feel the animal, he should be connected to the life under his hands, and he should be able to separate himself from the animals to say there, there are other values that we serve that, are, that make us distinct as human beings, not in a way to denigrate the animals, but to say, right, I, have cert- I have special responsibilities as a human being created in the image of the divine. So to balance both always, compassion and identification with all of the world's creatures, as well as to say, and I'm called, therefore, to be responsible for them right, in a different way. All right. So Moshe brings forward the sons of Aaron, right, and does this to them. And then the rest of the blood, Moshe dashes against every side of the altar. Why in general do we have blood being dashed at the altar? Cleansing. Cleansing. Kapara. So from the Akkadian, or is it Ugaritic? I can't remember. Um, Kupuru, to cleanse, to purify. That's not the case here. This is not a chatat offering. So why, if it's a miluim offering, why dash the blood? And there's no reason you would know this. Um, So when we have the covenantal ceremony, when we have the covenantal ceremony followed by the meal, what happens with an animal? It's cut in half. And what happens then with the covenant? Oh, come on. Oh, they walk through the Thank you. Animal. So the animal's cut in half. Everyone party to the agreement walks through the pieces, right? Presumably they are bloody, right? Because it's just been cut in half. Um, so the parties to the agreement walk through, and that means now they are bound by this covenantal agreement, and then they sit and they share the covenantal meal that seals the deal. All right, what does that have to do with blood being dashed on the altar? Are you saying this is sealing the deal? Yes, how? Who's party to this covenant? The priests the priest and? God. God. So the priests are on one side, the animal, right, is, is Slaughtered and the blood is dashed against the altar, so that what it does is it binds the two parties into the covenantal agreement that these these people and their descendants will forever serve the divine. They are both party uh, to this; they are bound together, right, in this covenantal arrangement. So it's not cleansing. Correct. In this case, it is. It is binding them together in covenant. If for the chata, it is cleansing, and we're going to see that there's going to be um, a purification and a consecration of the altar and of Aharon. So the fat and the broad entrails and the fat about the end of the protuberance of the liver and the two kidneys and their fat are burned, right? We always have to have the liver and all that stuff burned, right? Because we can't do what? Divination. divination, no divination, not allowed, Israelites. So you burn up all the things that people 
used to open an animal to look at for divination purposes. And from the bath, so, so now we have something else entering the scene. From the basket of unleavened bread that was before God, uh, Moshe took one cake of unleavened bread, one cake of oil bread, and one wafer. <laughs> Rakik. You gotta love that. Um, I have no idea. I don't know this word. Rakik. Uh, but we have the word matzah, right? So we, we see matzah, we know that, and lechem, lechem shemen. So, um, so bread dough that is leavened and with oil, that's what makes it, right, moist and fancy, right? You, you want that. Um, and, sorry, and place them on the fat parts and on the right thigh. He placed all these on the palms of Aaron and the palms of his sons and elevated them as an elevation offering before Adonai. Anybody want to give me another interpretation now of Miluim? From Malay? From full? What's full? Their hands. Their hands are full of the offering that they are now going to elevate in order to designate it as an offering to Yudhe Buffet. Yes? All right. But they're basically, are they basically just raising it in the air? Yes. Is that what they're doing? Presumably. They're just holding it up. Correct. Um, now, what's important to know, why the thigh, why is the thigh being placed on the priest's hand? This was the priestly portion. When an animal was brought, the priest got the thigh. The best part. <laughs> Some would argue, if you like leg of lamb. <laughs> right? Some would argue the best part. Remember, sacrifices were eaten for the most part. Except for the Holocaust, sacrifices were eaten. Right? The Holocaust was completely burned up, but everything else was eaten. So, uh, so the thigh, the right thigh... It's given to the priest. That's their priestly portion. So they kind of own it. Right? It's, it's theirs. It's already designated as theirs. All right? Why is that important? Why, why is that the piece they're going to lift up? Why don't they lift something else up? The ceremony is about Yeah. So why the thigh? Why are they lifting up the thigh? Yeah. So why is that important? Why couldn't they take something else? Because this is That's right. So it's that they they are given the thigh as their due. Then they offer it. They can't offer a piece of the animal that isn't theirs. Priests don't own animals. Right? They don't have them. The Israelites offer animals and the priests are given a portion. So the animals brought it's ritually slaughtered the way it's supposed to be, then they're given their portion and they offer their portion because that's all you can ever give in a sacrifice is what belongs to you. And then they offer that. All right, Pam, did you have a question or a comment? I was going to say that they couldn't designate the animal, the priests, you know, just the, the regular folks could. 
Israelite, Joe Israelite, I like to say. But so the priests, that was their way of designating. Yeah. Yep. Um, earlier, a little while ago, you used the term miluim, and it threw me because I know that that's what my grandson-in-law has to do in Israel, serve 30 days in the year. So how does... It's interesting. So we could guess. I, I would need to ask somebody who knows, but my guess would be if it's the reserves, it means you have a commitment. You know, that's not just for the time that you're, you know, that you have a service commitment, that you are designated as someone ready to fight for the state of Israel for, you know, until what they consider when they want you, right? right? And through that time, in a way that's kind of, what this is, that the priests are consecrated to service. They don't have a choice. They must serve in their rotation. It's not optional. And that is until the age of whatever. It's the same concept, really, which if you think about it, which is very interesting, that they don't use a military word for reserves. They use being consecrated to service. How about just making the army complete? (laughs) Okay. I'll buy it. Yes. Yes. And it's and it's messy work, yeah. and they're by the way not supposed to get any of it on them. <laughs> <laughs> and if they do, they have to wash their garments immediately, like purify their garments. Well, there's. It's interesting you ask. So, so certainly in the ancient world, people butchered animals. People who raised, and our, our ancestors were semi-nomadic pastoralists, right? Think about Bedouins with their flocks, right? Th- that's what they did. And so every now and then, you would eat one. Not a lot, because it was extraordinarily expensive. It's extravagant to slaughter an animal. You did it for special occasions. You did it for feasts. You did it for festivals. You did it for a wedding. You know, and you fed the whole clan, because that's a lot of meat, and you've got to eat it fast. Because unless you're going to eat beef jerky for six months, um, there was no way to keep that animal, right, from spoiling. So um, they knew how to do that. They knew how to butcher an animal, right? You, you go to any place that has either hunters, that your protein comes from hunting, or your protein, animal protein, comes from, you know, the flock. People are expert butchers who, who do that. We tend to have a revulsion against that kind of killing of animals, but they, they didn't have that? People were just used to it? Well, presumably, I mean, I believe, I am someone who believes those who believe this was very dramatic, that it, it did affect them, that the dashing of the blood on that white stone was meant to be jarring and therefore is expiatory. Therefore, it is effective, right? We just buy our sanitized, styrofoamed, plastic-wrapped meat. The butchery still happened. The gore and the disgusting, shocking awfulness of taking a life and all the blood and everything else that's, and the hard work that's entailed in carving it up has already happened. We support that by purchasing meat. We just don't have to deal with it. We don't have to face it. So we might buy meat, and God forbid, and, it, and I, I include myself, it rots in the fridge before we even get around to cooking it. That would not 
happen when you feel the pulse of that animal and you shecht it, right? And you are there witnessing what happens. I just feel like there's a more of a respect for what happens for us to be supported by animal protein um, and that the jarring, bloody, semi-violent nature of it all is what in some way makes it efficacious. And, and please don't everybody freak out when I say, why do we still circumcise our sons? Yeah. I, I believe it is the same thing. The danger, the drama, the blood, the pain on an innocent, there is something that remains incredibly powerful about the that. It is the They're both, of course, but why do we go, why do we, we're, we don't do this, but we still mm-hmm. circumcise our sons? Why is one still in effect and one isn't? Be- because I believe there's still power that's not logical or rational because the people who are going to say it's the sign of the covenant are people who don't believe there's a God who said that. I don't believe God ever said that. We know that. We know what I believe, right, about God. Right? I believe people wrote this. People tried to intuit and tried to figure out and tried to interpret how to live into divine covenant. I get that. We've evolved past there. None of us want to see a third temple, but we continue to circumcise our sons. Why? Why? It makes zero sense. When the nations, they circumcise their sons the same way that we buy meat. <coughs> Your circumcision is done in the hospital in styrofoam with a little plastic on top and a little sticker. No, it's in the hospital where mom and dad and all the relatives don't see it. Mm-hmm. So, so if, look, if you're going to do it, I'm all for the way we do it. But if you do it in a Jewish home, you uh, cut it in half and you walk through the blood. I, so I 100% agree. If we're going to do it, I 100% agree it should be done in the home. I talk to couples about this all the time. I'm asking the question before that. Why? Why? We don't cut up animals and walk through the pieces anymore to make a business deal. You know, I think here I just have to look at this a little differently in the sense that having thought the way you did before I watched my grandchildren go through this, it was so jarring that it made a permanent impact of a beautiful event that was lasting and meaningful. And I don't think it's inhuman at all. We think it is until we see it and understand it. But I think this is a lot more wisdom behind this. So I'm going to challenge you on every one of the words you just used. Yeah. Wisdom, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. Sorry, I've been to a lot of them. Yeah. Powerful, 100%. When I said it makes no sense, I meant logically. It doesn't have to. Clearly, it doesn't have to because we continue to do it even though it makes zero logical, rational sense. Clearly. So clearly this stuff still resonates on some level, right? It's not about animals anymore, but we cannot say, oh, ooh, we have so evolved past there. Not if there's a bris tomorrow afternoon. We have not. Dana? Um, I was just Kosher butcher, who it means kosher because the way the animal was killed, and because 
But the last one was that, you know, that's a little bit logical. Because yeah. that made, does this mean? I mean, yet we still buy kosher meat, that's very important. Well, okay, but, but, but I'll make a, I do have a logical argument or a moral argument for kosher meat over circumcision. And that is that supposedly kosher meat is to be shechted in a way that the blade is so sharp, say the rabbis, that it doesn't nick one hair on the animal's body so that the animal feels nothing. It goes through the windpipe and the animal feels no pain. That to me is different than clubbing it to death then, you know, electrocuting it, then hanging it upside down and what? Left over from the sacrifice time, the, the procedure, the way to do it, it's like we held on to that. Correct. So for that, I actually have a connection that says, okay, I prefer, if I'm going to eat meat, to know, right, that it was shechted in a way that, that the animal felt no pain, right, to minimize the suffering of an animal. Right, so now I want to be clear, as going on record saying, and if you look at any of the documentaries about going into kosher meat facilities, um, I think we all live with this lovely notion, right, that, that it was kinder and gentler to the animal, and it, it may not exactly be so. Sorry, uh, uh, there were hands over here. Elena? I just um, remember being told things like... Um, Circumcision was important for cleanliness, not to get infections in the foreskin. There is a raging debate in the medical community about with hygiene and proper education about hygiene that that is not a case one can make. There are other people who make the case that the foreskin actually communicates sensation during intercourse. And so what you're doing is compromising the sexual you know, pleasure slash experience of a male without his permission. So it's it's a raging debate right now. Rory and then Diane. Yeah, um, just back to the butchery thing. I, I think it's what happens in a communal public setting when everybody... Sorry. <laughs> Ow! I was like, yo! <laughs> when everybody is there experiencing it, there is an awareness. There's all sorts of different emotions. There's sensitive people. There, there's the professionals doing it. If... if you know, the butchers or the hunters are doing it. They do it every day. It's their job. Maybe they're numb to it. Maybe they just have that kind of character where they can do that kind of thing. Um, then um, it's a different experience. So I think that the fact that it's a, a communal experience brings awareness to the people and to that there actually is something going on here on an emotional level. Yeah. Um, yes, so. and, and I think that makes a huge difference for then your attitude towards... Yeah. Consumption, yeah. which we are sorely lacking, is some kind of check, and that experience, right, is in some way a check. It's like this: it is important, and it should be important. It shouldn't be callous and done every afternoon because you want a bologna sandwich. Mm -hmm. Diane. Uh, well, my experience from this is that uh, when talking about the foreskin, it happened to my sister, as you know, she, her, her son, the foreskin grew over. Mm -hmm. And eventually, they had to help it to come down, mm -hmm. and he had to be circumcised at the age of seven. And she says it was horrible. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if that could be part of it, that, you know, they, they, there was a big issue about that. When we talk about cleanliness, there was also maybe that part of it. Maybe it was a way to prevent that. I don't know. No, the prevailing, The prevailing thinking that 
I have been most convinced by, I'm not saying I'm right, um, is that if you take a, an uncircumcised penis and you compare it to a circumcised one, the major difference, if you're talking about a cult that, that started in a time when fertility was critical, is that the circumcised penis is ready for fertilization. It was a way to increase fertility. It was a magic... It was a magic way of increasing fertility. Sure. So the laws of marital purity, did you have um, relations on day 14? That's why, and you have more males. That's why the Israelites had 52% males, 48% females. They um, reproduced like the stars in heaven, multiplied like the stars in heaven, and they had a strong army because they had more males than females because of the laws of fertility. What? The laws of marital purity mean that you can get pregnant when you have intercourse. That would not judge in any way the gender of the issue from that union. Well, um, she's been learning on Chabad. Well, when you have a book on how to have a gender of your choice, you have a higher likelihood of having a male. Day 13, 14, 15. It increases the male slightly. If right, slower swimmers, what? Okay, but um, but so does pH, so does whatever. So, um, all right. So we have no evidence that ancient Israelites had fifty-two percent male versus forty. We just have no evidence to tell us that. Um, but the wait, what was I saying? And the other thing is that because circumcision was originally a fertility rite, it was done at puberty. It was moved back to infancy. To Mm-hmm. So in many places, it remains a fertility rite that is done at puberty. And um, we moved it back, thank God, to infancy. And day eight is the earliest day that, that the K factor kicks in um, to, to promote clotting. So it's the earliest you can do it safely without the baby bleeding out. All right. How, how did we get on to circumcision? It, it's my fault. I did it. I know. Okay. I did it. David always leads me down really tricky paths. All right. Oh, please, Margo. Why not? You asked the question. How come we still do it? What, I want you to know it was a rhetorical question on some level, but but please, if you would like to suggest an answer, by all means. That an answer to that question is because it sets us, it does set us apart from other people circumcise. Other people circumcise. The Egyptians circumcised. Just saying. Is it if someone in one eye? Yep. A lot of places do. So I'm just saying. In our mythology, yes. Yeah. Okay, but we, so we've we've rejected how other many days in your life. Do you stand and observe something that Abraham did Because. W- I totally get how that's been powerful. My only point is there's lots of this mythology that we go, yeah. right? We go, oh, that's lovely, but thank you very much. We've, yeah. we, it's mythology. We've moved on. Right. We don't believe that. We don't, right? I don't believe there was an Abraham who did that to his son or himself. I don't believe that. Abraham is a mythic figure. Yeah. I believe in the power 
of connecting to a mythic figure, or I wouldn't do what I do for a living. But it's not like, because there was an Abraham, and he did it. So if, if we don't believe it about anything else, it's interesting that we keep going back to that kind of stuff for this ritual that is so powerful we don't want to give it up. We just don't want to. I, I'm fine with saying, look, when I was pregnant, when I first got pregnant, and we didn't know the gender, I had this whole argument with my partner and this whole discussion with myself and asked every person I respected because I wasn't sure if I could do it or if I should do it. And I came to the place where I realized that I was, if I had a boy, I was going to do it. But I was very clear it's because I wanted to do it because of the what it's meant for our people not because Abraham did it not because God commanded it not because it's right not because it's good but because if I had a boy who was going to be raised in a Jewish home what would it mean for him to change in the locker room what would it mean for him not to look like his people what would it mean for him to have to defend why his mother and I'm not saying there are good reasons and I'm not saying it was the right decision I at least want to say I was honest enough to say I feel conflicted. I don't think it's the right thing to do. I'm going to do it. And I, ho- I hope, I thank God I had a girl. And I, w- I will go on record. I'm, I'm 51. What do I care? I, I hope that someday we're past it. I hope that someday we get over it and, and stop doing this to little boys. I want to ask a question. If someone converts to Judaism, because I have someone who's asking me the question last week. It depends on the movement. If they're not circumcised, it depends on which movement they convert with. The man needs to be circumcised. It depends which movement they're converting under. For conservative and orthodox in general, the answer is yes. I can sort of speak to that Mm -hmm. in the sense that I'm a convert. And uh, I, uh, I converted within the reform movement uh, although I had a, uh, I participated in a conservative Beit Deen and went to the mikveh and had an operation. I mean, I chose, I chose, uh, it's a little bit more involved, as you can imagine, for right. an adult. Um, but I chose, and uh, I got the distinct feeling from the, the my reform rabbi that, you know, as far as he was concerned, it's fine. You don't, you know, you don't have to do this if you don't want to. Uh, but for me, um, um, it was sort of my um, because of a feeling of wanting to symbolize my bond with my new community that I that I chose to do it. So I went in with my eyes open, at least for the first two minutes. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, but, it, you know, but to, I, I mean, to answer your friend's yeah. question, it will Someone depend, it, it will know. depend on which, which, you know, the process by which they convert, because uh, the Orthodox movement would not consider me Jewish. Mind you, they don't consider me Jewish either. Right. right. So. All right. Um, so, a testament to right the power that this ritual still has for us, right. and 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 I don't in any way want to say that ritual being powerful needs to be logical. If I in any way suggested that, I did not mean to. I meant 
I have great respect for the power that ritual has that bypasses our logical minds. That is where a lot of the power lies. And I am able to look at sacrifice that way. So I guess all of this is a long way to say. Um, you know, that sacrifice for me, they ate it. Like, it wasn't like they weren't going to eat it. Well, some of it, but they didn't eat. But, you know, but a lot of it they ate. And so it was, um, it, it's a powerful ritual that in some way I've, I feel, not about circumcision, but about other things. I wish we had something as powerful in place for us to really feel, like I said last time, that we've been forgiven, that we get to start over, that we're really demarcating a line where I'm going to change or or I'm so grateful and I have no right to expect the the bounty that's been given me and I want to feel like I'm giving a gift that's being accepted. And it, where do and I just feel like we're missing a lot of this power in our lives. Okay, David and Richard and then we're going to move on. The the way you just described this, that we have respect for the power of ritual, sort of conflicts with your comment earlier saying, I wish we could move past this as a ritual. And yet, it really is only ritual that makes generations stay as a community. All right, two things. One, I'm a charming set of inconsistencies, like the rest of us. I don't pretend to be consistent. Wait a minute. But I disagree. There's huge power to ritual. I don't think all of them need to be in place. There's huge power behind making a woman go for family purity reasons after her period to go to the mikvah. We say no to that. So I'm not saying I don't believe we should have the power of ritual in our lives. I'm saying the mutilation of baby boys is not one of them I would like to see continue. That's all. Number two... Um, I, there are lots of people who are circumcised lots of folks who have gone through that ritual come to my office I'll show you the statistics who don't stay so I don't buy it as if you don't do that you don't stay within the community no, because no, lots no, of those circumcised folks are out of here that's not what I'm saying at mm-hmm. all. what I'm saying is that this is such a big factor throughout thousands of years that, and I can't remember hearing of anybody who's died from circumcision that probably has not the point uh, well, maybe it is the point. It is not the point. That was not my point. No, but what I'm saying is that this, I think what you've done is you've looked at this far too intellectually. And I'm, a value. I'm a mother of an infant. Don't talk to me about intellectualizing, taking a knife to my perfectly formed, amazingly innocent, open to the universe for the first time. Don't talk to me about over-intellectualizing whether or not I will slice off a part of their body. There is not a more visceral decision that a parent in this world makes than doing that to a perfect new infant. And it trivializes the ritual, I believe, and the decision to do it if we don't face the agony of what it means. I stood in the Beit Midrash in my rabbinical school with one of my amazing professors of Talmud. His father sits on the Supreme Court in Israel and he raised up his baby boy in front of all of us that was filled to the brim because it was the bris of his first son. And he says the Hebrew words, Behold, I am ready, the formulaic, I am ready and and I pre- have, I'm prepared to offer my son for Brit Milan. And then we're all waiting to clap and let go. And he says, 
And behold, I stand unready and unprepared and unwilling to give my son for Brit Milah. And then he handed him to the moil. That was honesty. And anyone who does that ritual, I believe, anymore, gets that we are both prepared and completely unprepared to hand over that infant for this ritual. Yeah. It seems like it's more, you're talking about more about the violence, and you're standing and allowing this violence to occur and, and this, big, this insult to occur. It's not so much the circumcision, but it's the action and the fact that you're letting your love be... Yeah. Yeah. That's yes. Right. That's yes. That's right. That's that's exactly right. So that's that's exactly the conflict. All right. One more thing. We got to move on. Oh my God. Back to the portion. I'm sorry. It seems it seems that even though even though today we've been talking a lot about uh, blood rituals, uh, this is in some ways a continuation of of discussions we had, I think last week and once or twice at least before, where you have talked about how because our modern age has become so rationalized that we've lost we've lost that knife edge between fear and awe. Mm-hmm. Which is what the what to some extent what regardless of what the ritual is, mm-hmm. the, the the ritual itself seems to be that knife edge where you know yes. part of it yeah. part of it makes sense part of it doesn't make sense part of it is designed to create fear part of it is designed to engender awe and you have talked on numerous occasions about our having somehow not really lost our way but lost our ability to find meaningful meaning things that are meaningful for us as opposed to things that we read about that people 3,000 years ago did to engender fear and awe. What, Correct. What is fear and awe for us in the 21st century? Right. And that's, that's what we're struggling to find. Yes. I wish we were struggling harder um, to find it, frankly. All right. So let's look at uh, Moshe taking from their hands and turning them into smoke. So the, the offerings that, that are in their hands that they have designated, they offer... The ordination offering for Reach Nichoach, a pleasing odor before God, an offering by fire to God. Moshe then takes the breast and elevates it as an elevation offering before God. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination. Um, so Moshe takes his portion as the officiant and, uh, and designates it as an offering. That offering could then be shared with the priests. Because the priest had to participate in the meal, right? The whole point of what binds you in the covenant is walking through those bloody pieces and then sealing it with the meal. But the priest had offered their allotted portion, right, as the gift. So Moshe takes his portion and makes an offering from which the priests could eat so that that very important um, covenantal meal can happen. Did they have lots of lambs? Yes. Lots of Yes. Yeah, they dead fox. They were semi nomadic pastoralists. I mean, they sacrificed all of them. You, you, you could only eat sacrificial meat. Yeah. So if you were going to eat meat, you had to sacrifice it. 
had lots of them, so there were plenty of thighs to go around. Yes. Okay. Every Israelite who brought forward a lamb, the thigh went to the priests. Yeah. The thigh went to feed the priests, right? The, it was shared by the community. All right, so Moshe takes some of the anointing oil and some of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkles it upon Aaron and his vestments and on his sons and their vestments. And this is how he consecrates Aaron and his vestments and his sons and their vestments to service, right? Moshe says to Aaron and his sons, boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting and eat it there with the bread that is in the basket of ordination as I commanded. And actually, this probably should say as I was commanded. Um, Aaron and his sons shall eat it, and what is left over of the flesh and bread you shall consume in fire. It was a sacred meal. You can't take doggy bags from the covenantal meal, right? It, it has to be eaten, and because it was holy, because it was sacred, it had to be, the rest of it had to be, right, consumed in fire. And you shall not go outside the tent of meeting for seven days until the period, until the day that your period of ordination is completed, right? Seven is the number of completion, in Jewish tradition, um, for your ordination will require seven days. They had to stay within the sacred precinct, so not inside the tent, but they couldn't go outside the outer courtyard for a complete seven days. Everything done today that God has commanded you to be done um, to make expiation for you. So these seven days are to lechaper, um, right? To purify, to atone uh, for the priests. And you shall remain at the tent of meeting for seven days and seven nights, keeping Adonai's charge that you may not die, for so I have commanded. And this they did. Wow. So we are going to look at one way that the rabbis, when we talk about what meaning does this have for us today, the rabbis are always trying to figure out how does it have meaning for us today. And the rabbis don't abandon the text because the text really in its literal form doesn't do anything for us anymore except remind us of a powerful ritual that we no longer observe and not that that can't have its own power um, in all the ways we've talked about and connecting us to our history and our mythology and our um, powerful ways of expressing things in the past but the text is a living text and so so the rabbis have this beautiful tradition so I'm giving you but one example of this tradition of taking a word um, where it appears one place in the Torah and drawing from that new place something about the other place. But in this case, the rabbis know that it's a case of S-E-E and S-E-A, right? So, oh, say can you see, has nothing to do with, right, crossing the sea. But if you're in an oral tradition, those words... For the rabbis, sorry, that is an invitation, right? Even should they have zero to do with each other, it is an invitation. So the rabbis uh, go to this verse. Uh, where's the, um, find Bert, the verse of, uh, of Moshe taking the breast piece? The, I mean, the... the All right, look at verse 29. Read the English. Moses took the breast and elevated it as an elevation offering before Adonai. Okay, good. So what is the breast in this case? What's the Hebrew for breast? Chazeh. Right? There's your shoresh. There's your root. Chazeh. All right? 
The transliteration of this word is chazon, and this is chazet. So if we go to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the noun chazon means a vision. A vision did Isaiah, son of Amoz. Oh, sorry. The vision. Well, it's not Hachazan. So, a vision, Isaiah, Ben Amoz, that he visioned. What do you use for a vision? I guess that he saw. Kind of weak. So, write the noun and the verb. What does this have to do with the price of tea in China? Let's look at this page that I gave you, yes? We get the inauguration of the priest described. So Yisrael ben Shmuel Taub, who lived in Poland and founded the Hasidic dynasty of Mojit, he was more famous for his emphasis on music, whatever. The term chazeh is an expression denoting seeing or vision, as in the phrase, right, chazon, the chazon of, of Isaiah, son of Amut, which he saw, which he visioned. That is to say, this is the commentary, right, of our Hasidic master. That is to say, Moses took the chazet, that's the breast, right, and elevated it as an offering before the eternal. This refers to the sanctification of sight. (laughs) Right? You gotta love the rabbis. So they are never ready to abandon the text, to look outside of it, right? For they, they love to play with the love letter from God that we are given, which is this vast love letter, right? You know, of, of all of the canon. Isaiah's in the canon. It's fair game. So, so what is the elevation of sight? Here's where our author helps us. How can we sanctify sight? Surely we have little control over what our eyes see. Do we believe this? I see. I don't even buy the first line. I mean, some things we can't avoid seeing. But really, I don't know about y'all, but when I see images on TV, it's not because I didn't turn it on. Right? We, well, this is all the stuff that Shema tells us. Right? Stop looking. Stop seeing. And listen. Because our, and don't go after what your eyes see and what you lust after, right? Because your eyes see it. Um, so some things we can't help seeing. A lot of things, I believe we have way more control over what we see than we actually take responsibility for. So he says, actually, we have a great deal, especially nowadays when electronic media are bringing photos and videos into nearly every part of our lives. Now more than ever, we choose what to see. So how do we sanctify what we see? I don't think the mojitzer is suggesting we avert our eyes from bad events, whether in the news or in our physical vicinity. Those things cry out for our concern, and we must guard against complacency or indifference. I think he is saying that we need to try to see the good, even in bad events, if we can, to perceive God at work, even in bad news, for even bad news can be a goad to our empathy and positive action. Right? It's very clear this is not somebody who's saying, find the good in the bad because it's a lesson, right? It's saying, even in the bad, the, the way we can sanctify our vision is when I see that, does it move me to greater empathy, to greater compassion? Does it move me 
to take a stand? Does it move me to, you know, try and eradicate that happening in the world uh, to other people? All right, go to the bottom paragraph of your second set of handout. Oh, that I haven't given you yet. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, so um, what this, uh, what R- R- Rabbi Richard Levy is lifting up, you don't need to see it yet, just, just it's coming around, is that just as Aaron and his sons are consecrated, that's exactly what happens with the altar. That the altar is consecrated just as Aaron is. That Aaron is another altar. He's the same as the altar. When he is in service, when he is working, he is the same thing as the altar, a vehicle through which the people and the divine draw close to one another. Mm-hmm. So um, about the middle of the bottom paragraph, after the parenthetical Leviticus citation, they are then to sit at the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, eating the meat and bread provided to them. It is though the extraordinary kedusha of the entrance to the tent is to seep into them during the week they remain there, emerging on the eighth day. The symbolism is rich. The door of the tent recalls Abraham, who sat in the door of his own tent and saw the presence of God. The seven days recall the seven days of creation, as though Aaron and his sons were being recreated during this period into living tabernacles. So for us, right, I would ask the question, where is it that we sit at the opening of the tent for seven days? Where is it that we really take that time to experience the presence of God, to to let stuff seep in like that for seven days, to be recreated by taking seven days to allow that to happen, right? The only time I really hear about it anymore is on silent retreats, when people go on retreats. That there's something about taking that time out and that time away in, in a community that has that same intention where nothing else comes in and you're cut off from the outside world and are marinating right in a community um, dedicated to lifting each other up that's really the only place I hear about it very much anymore. In, in the context of the sacred, I'm not saying it doesn't happen at boot camp or it doesn't happen in other ways, but in terms of the sacred, I really wonder where... Well, isn't Shabbat a mini yeah, version of that? It's supposed to be, absolutely, I think it's supposed to be. And that it's... Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> so for, well, that's so for an hour. Seven days to an hour. <laughs> Right, everything just moves faster these days. So that is interesting. That is very interesting that you bring that up, Rita. So true, and and again, how many people sit shiva for seven days anymore? Unfortunately, I don't think I've seen a case of that in fifteen years. Um, and and again, I'm not bl- I'm not blaming anyone. I'm saying. It, because I think you're right. I think that is one of the places that people would sit at the entrance and just greet people as they came in and really were only present to... It's very powerful. I've done it. Right? It's very powerful. It's very powerful because nothing else happens during that time, right? And you, 
you can let all of that soak in and yeah and come to some kind of sense of completion right by mandating doing nothing else except sitting with your grief there's a way that that treats grief in a way i've not seen elsewhere you, you, that, that you're done like on some level you're kind of done with the immediate grieving after seven days of that that people are just like okay i'm, re- I'm ready they're, they're not not grieving anymore but there's a way that just dealing with that for seven days with such intensity people are ready to take that walk around the block yeah it's like all right go to your other handout go to the sentence that starts the israelite priests right there's not a lot of time left so i'm not going to talk a lot but think about this in terms of apac and us having been addressed by four presidential candidates bernie sanders was the only one not there uh, correct <laughs> right the jewish candidate did not come um, and we uh so we were addressed by all four of the other candidates so it is in that vein um that rabbi rabbi rachel shabbat betalachmi um offers this commentary on sav so what does it have to do? She's asking, what, what does any of this that we just read have to do with us today and with leadership today, both in Israel and in America? She says, so drop down right after the Israelite priest to the next paragraph. First and foremost, the priests had to understand precisely what they needed to do. They had to have watched and learned and trained and prepared for such complex work. Second, they also had to engage in that sacred work with enormous care focus and commitment right there is a commentary for me on several of the candidates that we heard (laughs) they have to know and understand exactly what they would need to do a plan details of a plan they had to have watched and learned and trained and prepared for such complex work meaning the work of what they're leadership would be calling them to do the details of that second they had to engage in that sacred work with enormous care focus and commitment care being the operant word in that sentence for me um about leadership it's really about caring for people leaders in any age must approach all resources as though they are sacred how carefully a leader handles the precious resources of the people, how carefully and mindfully they perform the right actions in the right place and time matters and can unify even the most divided community. Unifying a divided community. Bridges versus walls. The careful behavior of the ancient priests and the behavior of all leaders is so important because their actions show the value they place not only on their role, but on the people whom they represent. And I'm going to go so far as to say all of the people that they would represent should they take on a certain height of leadership role. They have to represent the care of every single person or group of people that would fall under the circle of their responsibility. One of the most powerful effects of the rituals over which they presided was that even the most powerless and most sinful could feel that the most powerful individuals were taking care of them and their offerings. 
How would the most vulnerable, the most powerless in our community feel by who rose to that position of leadership? How would immigrants feel? Right? How would just any number of kinds of people who are powerless feel under the leadership of whoever it is is that's going to rise to the highest office in our land. People who were represented so carefully and responsibly could feel through such rituals that the brokenness of the world and the people in it could somehow be repaired through appropriate and careful action. Leadership executed carefully then is not just about managing a society, but about healing it so that it can move forward with confidence and optimism. And um, I will close. Uh, you can read the rest at home um, with just a couple sentences. One is, thirdly, the character of the priest mattered. <laughs> The community had to not only trust their skills and witness their carefully, careful handling of sacred resources, but believe that they possessed the character to properly execute such a role. The quality of heart, mind, and body of the leader is of great significance. Right? Because otherwise, power in, in hands of people who don't take great care is a disaster. All right, and, and go to your next page. Oh, I can't believe you were here, Rachel, catching a flight. Um, it, the, the work of the ancient priest shaped not only the way society functioned, but how it saw itself and its potential, its way forward. And according to the great 20th century anthropologist Clifford Geertz, ritual can transform us into seeing ourselves as greater and better than we believed we were before and the most meaningful ritual experience is one that can transform the individual in such a way that they want to, in turn, transform the society in which they live. So it's transformative, all right? And the question is, is, is that power and the whipping up and the frenzy that we get into when in the presence of a charismatic leader? Torah teaches, according to Rabbi Shabbat Alachmi, Beit Alachmi, the Torah is telling us the power has to be placed in the right hands, in hands that will take great care with every detail of how it's handled, take every care that resources are sacred, and, and have that amazing energy and commitment and passion that happens in these kinds of times and in rallies and in whatever, and in ritual, if you will, to have that bring a community together so it moves forward with confidence and hope and turns people around when they leave there to want to repair and heal and make the world and society a more whole, safer, better place. And I get that we can have real disagreements about what that looks like. I do. I really believe that. I believe that candidates who have a completely opposite agenda to what I have in terms of how to keep us safe and how to bring us together and how to move us forward, that we can vehemently disagree. I believe when it comes to the character of the candidate and whether or not that person really cares for the most powerless and the people who disagree with them when they become the leader, that is a whole different 
category. A whole different ballgame. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.